Well, for the past year or so, we've been making this journey through the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're finally now in the home stretch of our sermon series. This is a series, as you know, that's confronted us with a number of issues and questions relating to our relationships and to our corporate worship within the body of Christ. And as we've seen over the course of this series, Paul has tackled each and every one of the problems in the church, not by telling the Corinthians to buckle down and to smarten up, to try harder in their own strength, but by showing these Christians how the gospel of Christ applies to every area of life, how it gives a solution to every problem we face. In this inspired letter, Pastor Paul is carefully interwoven and in applied gospel truth, but now as we come into the concluding chapters, he gives us what is probably the clearest statement of the gospel in the entire letter, indeed one of the clearest and best known summaries of the gospel anywhere in the New Testament. And so once again this morning, I want to invite you to open up your Bible and turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to reread the same passage we began to look at last week, verses 1 to 11. Listen carefully as I read from the inspired and inerrant Word of God. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. The Word of the Lord. And thanks be to God for His holy and inspired Word. Well, last Lord's Day, we began to consider Paul's answer to a very simple and foundational question that lies at the core of the Christian faith, and that is the question, what is the Gospel? First two verses of this chapter, Paul gets back to the basics by reminding the Corinthians of the Gospel message he had proclaimed to them when he first walked into their city with great fear and trembling and was led by the Lord to plant this ancient Christian church. In these opening two verses of chapter 15, Paul outlined six characteristics of the Gospel that we looked at last week. And now as we move into verses 3-11, to he is going to fill us in on the content of the Gospel. This is very basic, very foundational teaching that many of us are intimately familiar with, but it is also crucial teaching that helps to set the stage for the remainder of Paul's argument here in chapter 15. Now last week I, I mentioned the fact Paul is confronting here in this chapter a dangerous heresy that had entered into the Corinthian church under the guise of human wisdom. Certain members of this church who had come out of a pagan background, perhaps were trying to make the gospel more appealing to non-believing Greeks, had started to question or even to deny the doctrine of the resurrection. 
Now, they were probably not so much denying the fact that Jesus has risen from the dead, but they were certainly denying the closely associated truth that all Christians who have been united to Christ by, by faith alone will one day rise out of their tombs and will receive new and glorified bodies. These Greek believers were living in a culture and society that held a low view of the human body. They were confronted by a religious worldview that saw salvation as the liberation of the immaterial soul from the so-called prison house of the physical body. And in this particular culture and context, the Christian teaching about resurrection had become an embarrassment to some of the Christians. It was foolishness to the Greeks. It did not fit very well with the philosophy of Plato. And so the Christians, under immense cultural pressure, felt that it might be best to drop these uncomfortable parts from the Gospel message. They thought that it might be best to preach a truncated version of the Gospel that did not include the parts about the resurrection. They thought that they could improve on the Gospel by changing and by tweaking it just a little bit. But Paul knows that whenever we mess around with the Gospel, even with the very best of intentions, we will never end up improving it. We will only end up losing it. Paul, after reviewing the foundational, fundamental characteristics of the Gospel in verses 1-2, to proceeds to remind the Corinthians of the content of this message called the Gospel in verses 3-5. to for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. I think many of us here this morning are probably familiar with those verses. Perhaps some of us in this room have committed those verses to memory. But I want to emphasize this morning with the Apostle Paul just how crucial this teaching really is. Because Paul doesn't tell the Corinthians here in verse 3 that he's got something that they may want to consider and debate later on when they've got free time. He tells them here that this message called the Gospel is of first importance. We're not dealing here in the realm of secondary issues. We're not dealing here in the realm of human opinions. We are dealing here with the foundational bedrock truth of our faith. This is truth that Paul and the other apostles sacrificed their lives to defend. This is truth without which you cannot rightly call yourself a Christian. The Gospel message, friends, is of first importance. And so we must pay careful attention to what Paul is about to tell us. As Paul goes back to the basics in this chapter and reminds the Corinthians about the Gospel, he speaks here in these verses about delivering to them what he had also what he had already received. This language indicates, as we mentioned last week, the Gospel is not something that the Apostle Paul thought up one day in a sudden burst of creative energy, but rather the Gospel is truth that Paul had received from a source outside of himself. And over in Galatians chapter 1, the passage we read at the beginning of the service, we learn from Paul's own testimony he had received this truth directly from the Lord Jesus. Paul first learned the Gospel by direct revelation from the Lord. But we're also told in Galatians, this truth about Jesus Christ lined up perfectly with the message that the other apostles were already teaching and preaching on the streets of Jerusalem. So much so that the apostles extended him the right hand of fellowship and supported him as a missionary to the Gentiles. 
Paul is giving us now the basic facts about the gospel, infallible truth that he had received and delivered to the Corinthians. And interestingly, this is the same kind of language Paul used back in chapter 11 when he teaches the church about the Lord's Supper and says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night He was betrayed, took bread. And when He had given thanks, broke it and said, this is My body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. You know, as we consider this this message of first importance received by Paul, delivered to the Corinthians, it's helpful to keep in mind the letter that we are now studying is one of the earliest parts of the New Testament. The book of 1 Corinthians was written by Paul sometime around 50 A.D. And that means it was written a full decade before the Gospel of Mark, which is generally considered to be the earliest of the four Gospels in our New Testament. And so think about this for a minute. When Paul was writing these words to the Corinthians, only a small portion of the New Testament had been put down on paper. But yet through this language of receiving and delivering, we learn that Christian doctrine was already being preserved and faithfully passed down by the eyewitnesses who had seen the Lord, who had heard Him speak, and who saw Him raised back to life. Not sure how interesting this will be to you, but one thing that fascinates me about 1 Corinthians is that we are holding in our hands, we are reading in these verses what is probably the earliest recorded teaching and tradition about Jesus Christ and the meaning of the cross. Very likely, Paul is quoting here in these verses from an early creed developed by the apostles in order to teach people about Jesus and to transmit Christian truth from one generation to the next. And this ancient Christian creed that Paul had received and is now passing down to the Corinthians is the earliest summary of the gospel that we have. In fact, many many New Testament scholars suggest that this creed dates within a few short months or perhaps years of the resurrection. Because of Jesus was crucified in 33 A.D. and Paul was converted on the road to Damascus around 36 A.D., he likely received this creed three years later during his initial visit with the apostles that we read about in Galatians chapter 1. You know, friends, although we believe and we fully trust the entire New Testament has been inspired and preserved by the Holy Spirit, there are many critics of our faith who want to argue that the message of the Gospel was somehow invented or changed in between the death of Christ in 33 A.D. and the writing of the Gospel of Mark in 60 A.D. If you're the kind of person that likes to watch the History Channel or the Discovery Channel, you will hear shows and you'll hear interviews with secular and liberal scholars who want to discredit the Bible on these grounds. But what I find greatly encouraging, again, in the face of these modern attacks, is that we have here in 1 Corinthians a clear statement of the Gospel message that predates the Apostle Paul and goes all the way back to the resurrection. And as we are soon going to see, the remarkable events described here in these verses were not private or obscure events. These were events witnessed by well over 500 men and women, many of whom were still alive at the time when Paul was preaching and writing this letter. One final thing I want to highlight before we move on is is that the existence of an ancient creed such as this one shows us just how important it is to have written statements and confessions of faith. 
One lesson I've learned in my studies of church history is that we modern Christians are deeply indebted to brothers and sisters in the early church who took it upon themselves to write down biblically rich, theologically sound summaries of Christian doctrine that could be easily memorized and then passed down to the next generation. Of course, the most famous and well-known of these early creeds is the Apostles' Creed, which I imagine some of you memorized in other Christian churches and contexts. Now, I'm not for a moment suggesting that these creeds are inspired or that they're on par with Scripture, but I am suggesting this morning that it's a shame that we evangelicals are not more familiar with them, that we no longer commit these creeds to memory or repeat them in our public meetings. As a pastor, as a student of church history, I know that there is great value in memorizing the ancient creeds. And Lord willing, I'm hoping to do a sermon series in the near future where we will walk through the basic biblical teaching contained in the Apostles' Creed and perhaps even memorize that creed together as a church family. Because history shows us, history teaches us, churches and denominations that do not place a high value on doctrinal truth usually end up drifting away from the authority of God's Word and allowing dangerous heresies to enter into the church. That's why here at Rosedale, in our larger denomination, we have a detailed statement of faith that spells out exactly what we believe and why we believe it. That's why in our membership classes, we go through the various articles of faith in that document. It's why we require affirmation of that document before entering into formal membership of this church. And friends, if for some reason the Lord ever calls you to leave Rosedale and to seek fellowship somewhere else, the very first thing that you should do is to go online and read the statement of faith because that will tell you a great deal of what you need to know about any church. And if you ever arrive at a church that does not have a statement of faith or that has a very minimal statement of faith, I would counsel you to proceed with caution. Because a church that does not spell out their beliefs and define their confessional boundaries is in grave danger of compromising the Christian faith and falling prey to all kinds of false teaching. We've spoken a bit this morning about the importance of creeds, something that you don't often hear in a Baptist church. We've talked a little bit about this ancient biblical creed, but in the remainder of our time this morning, I want to look at the content of this creed, which is really a summary of the gospel itself. Verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Notice first of all here, Paul does not refer to the Lord by the name given to him by his parents at birth, but by the scriptural title that only he can rightfully claim. Very plainly, the Bible teaches us Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ. And that little word Christ or Christos simply means the anointed one. When we agree with the witness of Scripture that Jesus is the Christ, we are affirming that Jesus is the Messiah. This is a title that speaks of His kingship, of His sovereign authority over all things. We believe as Christians that God is actively building His kingdom, that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. We believe that He is the One before whom every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and before whom every tongue will confess that He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so the Apostle Paul teaches us, first of all here, Jesus is the Christ, but secondly, we learn in these verses that the Lord Jesus died for our sins and that His death on the cross was a fulfillment of prophecy. 
Though it's possible to find many uninformed skeptics who will try to tell you that Jesus never really lived or existed, the historical evidence for Jesus' existence in crucifixion by the Romans is uh, overwhelmingly strong. No serious and informed historian of any persuasion, whether liberal or conservative, will deny that Jesus was a real Jewish man who lived in the first century, or that Jesus gained a popular following among the crowds, or that Jesus eventually got into trouble with the Roman government and was crucified. You don't need to be a Christian to believe in these things. The historical record speaks for itself. Even atheists affirm that Jesus really existed as a historical figure. But as Christian men and women, we are not content merely to rehearse historical details about Jesus' life and death. We're called to go further than that to interpret the meaning of these events as we see the Apostle Paul doing here in these verses. Because the fact that Jesus was crucified by the Romans doesn't really set Him apart or make Him unique. It's a tragic fact of history. Thousands of Jewish men were brutally killed and crucified by the Romans during the wars and the rebellions of the first century. No, brothers and sisters, what sets Jesus apart is not the fact that He died on a Roman cross, but the fact that He died upon that cross for the purpose of saving us from our sins. That's what's being affirmed here in these verses by the Apostle Paul. Not merely the fact of Christ's death, but rather the significance of His death. This is what makes Jesus so unique. This is what sets Jesus apart from any other person who's ever walked on this planet because no one else has claimed the authority to forgive sins. This is exactly what Jesus claimed to be able to do. It's one of the reasons why the religious leaders of His day hated Him so much, why they sought after His death with such persistence. Ironically, even though these men desperately wanted to kill Him in order to silence Him, to stamp out the movement He had started in the sovereign purposes of God, all of their plotting, all of their scheming only served to accomplish the eternal purpose for which He was sent into this world to die on the cross to give His life a ransom for many. We may wonder this morning, as I once wondered, what the connection is between the death of this man named Jesus who lived so long ago and the forgiveness of all of my sin today. Remember as a teenager having this question in the back of my mind, wondering why it was that a person like Jesus would need to die on a Roman cross in order for salvation to come to me into our fallen race. I used to wonder why it was that God could not just forgive our sin. Why God could not just forget about our sin without requiring the death of His Son. But you know something? The answer to that question came when I started to dig into the Bible to understand the justice and the holiness of God as it contrasts with the depths of our own sin and depravity. You see, friends, the Word of God says every one of us have sinned against a perfectly holy God. Every one of us falls short of His righteous standard. And it gets even worse than that, for in Romans 6.23 we read that the wages of sin is death. When our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned against God in the Garden of Eden, something drastic changed in their relationship with God. The day before their rebellion, they were walking and talking with God in the cool of the garden. The day afterwards, they were hiding from God in fear. And ever since that terrible day in Eden, we human beings have been separated from the God who created us. And that separation has come as a result of our sin. 
We enter into this world with a sinful nature inherited from Adam. It doesn't take long for us to commit many sins of our own that only serve to confirm our guilt and our responsibility before this holy God. We come into this world estranged from God. If our problem with sin is not dealt with, we will exit this world estranged from God. We will spend all of eternity estranged from God in a terrible place of torment and punishment that the Bible calls hell. Death and hell are the consequences of sinful rebellion. This is why it took the death of another perfect man to make things right. A second Adam who would come and bring us back into the garden paradise. You see, friends, Jesus Christ came into this world many years ago, fully God and fully man. He lived the perfect and sinless life that you and I cannot possibly live. And Jesus is the only person who has perfectly kept the demands of God's justice. That is the reason why He is uniquely qualified to die in our place to pay the penalty for our sin. Here in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul doesn't get it, give us a lot of details about how the death of Jesus cleanses us from sin. But if we flip over a few pages to 2 Corinthians 5.21, he fills us in on some of the details. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake, God made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, the justice, the holiness of God demands the ultimate penalty for sin. That is the bad news that we need to come to grips with this morning. But the good news is that Jesus died on the cross long ago as a sin substitute for anyone and for everyone who would ever come to Him in faith and receive His offer of forgiveness and grace. And so when Paul and the apostles speak about Jesus dying for sin, they are really speaking about what we call a substitutionary atonement. They are speaking about an innocent man dying on behalf of the guilty so that we, the guilty men and women, can walk free. And were it not for Christ's death on the cross, we would all without exception be subject to the full brunt of God's wrath and justice. But at Calvary and on that old rugged cross, the justice of God was satisfied so that true peace with God could be restored. Now this, friends, is the wonderful good news of the Gospel, but it's good news that came at a terrible cost. An innocent man, the God-man, who willingly exchanged our sin for His perfect righteousness and then took that sin to the cross. For our sake, God made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Well, as we continue along now in Paul's summary of the Gospel, we read in verse 4 that He was buried. That He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. You know, one of the best attested facts about Jesus Christ that every skeptic of the Bible needs to face head on is the fact that Jesus was buried on Friday afternoon in the tomb of a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea and that this same tomb of Joseph was found to be vacant on Sunday morning. And these are the recorded facts, even though the entrance of that tomb was carefully guarded by Roman soldiers and blocked off by a massive stone. The empty tomb of Jesus Christ is one of the strongest pieces of evidence that supports the truth of the resurrection. I suspect that that is one of the reasons why the creed mentions the burial of Christ in addition to the death of Christ. 
Christ's burial in that tomb was attested by eyewitnesses. The vacant and empty tomb was attested by eyewitnesses. And this is not something that can be easily explained away. But of course, that has never stopped people from trying. One of the earliest attempts to explain the empty tomb was devised by the Jewish leaders themselves who spread a rumor that the disciples had stolen the body and that they had stashed it away somewhere. Now how exactly Jesus got past the band of heavily guarded Roman soldiers, I'm not too sure. But that was one attempt to explain it and you can read about it in Matthew 28. Other skeptics across the years have claimed that the women somehow went to the wrong tomb on Sunday morning or that Jesus survived the crucifixion and somehow revived in the cool of the tomb, somehow pushed the stone away, made it past the guards, and then traveled north to Galilee and convinced everyone that he was he had resurrected from the dead. You can try and explain it all away if you desire, but what cannot be denied is that the tomb was empty on that first Easter morning. And by far the most intellectually, spiritually satisfying answer is the one that is given to us in the Bible under, in, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. God the Father raised God the Son from the dead. It's the only explanation that makes sense of the facts. Jesus was buried in the tomb of Joseph. On the third day, He rose from the dead in accordance with the Scriptures. He proved to be exactly who He claimed to be. Well, at this point, the Apostle Paul has given us a basic outline of the Gospel reminding us this message of salvation is rooted in three historical events. It's rooted in the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, in His burial in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, and in His resurrection on the third day. And it's this third and final truth about the resurrection that Paul is now going to defend and uphold as an integral part of the Christian Gospel. Some of the Corinthians wanted to minimize the importance of the resurrection. Some of them were starting to deny it altogether. But Paul is warning them here in this verses, these verses, this is something that they cannot and that they must not do. For to deny the resurrection is to deny the gospel. And to deny the gospel is to depart from the Christian faith and to show that you were never saved to begin with. In order to persuade some of the believers who are starting to waver and to soften on this truth, Paul is going to give us yet another reason why the resurrection cannot be easily dismissed as a piece of fiction. Let's have another look at our text. It says there that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, to, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. In the relatively short period of time between the resurrection and the ascension, we know from multiple historical sources, the Lord Jesus appeared to eyewitnesses who knew him before he was crucified. And Paul identifies some of these people by name. But what is perhaps most remarkable about what Paul tells us in verse 5 is that Jesus appeared to over 500 witnesses at the same time and that many of these people were still living and breathing at the time this letter was written. You know, if we only had one or two witnesses to the resurrection, we might be tempted to join in with the skeptics to doubt the credibility of this fantastic story. Perhaps even to conclude that these one or two eyewitnesses were hallucinating. 
But when we are told that there are dozens and even hundreds of eyewitnesses who all claim to see the same thing at the same time with their own eyes, it becomes evident that something happened. Last week, I read a story online about an elderly Jewish woman who narrowly survived the Holocaust and the Nazi death camps of World War II. Understandably, this lady was so traumatized by her experience, she never wanted to speak about it again. But now, well into her 90s, approaching the very end of her life, she decided to go public with her story. And the reason why this lady was willing to do, endure the pain of opening up old wounds was to counter the influence of Holocaust deniers. She wanted to make sure that the horrors of those death camps would never be forgotten, never swept under the rug. You know, I have a notion that the Apostle Paul is doing something similar here. For the benefit of a Christian church that had a sizable and growing contingent of resurrection deniers. By reminding these men and women of the abundant eyewitness testimony, by giving them a challenge implicitly to go and ask and talk to these witnesses for themselves that were still alive, Paul is building a watertight case for the resurrection. Now, of course, from our vantage point in history, we can't go and talk to those eyewitnesses. They are all long gone. But you know something, brothers and sisters, God has not left us without a witness. For in His kindness and graciousness, God has given us the witness of His written Word. He has also left us with the historical witness of the original apostles who according to tradition were willing to die violent deaths in order to defend the truth of the resurrection and to pass that truth on to the next generation. Chuck Colson, who was part of the Nixon administration, who went to jail during the Watergate scandal of the 1970s, later went on to become a born-again Christian and made the following comment about Jesus' resurrection. Colson says, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because twelve men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, and then they proclaimed that truth for forty years, never once denying it. Every one of them was beaten, tortured, stoned, put in prison. They would never have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate, on the other hand, embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. And you're telling me that 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely not. Remain a skeptic. Remain an unbeliever if you wish. I'm with Chuck Colson. More importantly, I'm with the Apostle Paul. Historical evidence points to the resurrection as the only plausible, logical explanation for the empty tomb. Every single skeptical theory that has ever been put forward in an attempt to deny and discredit the historical facts falls woefully short of the mark. Well, in addition to everything that we learned last week in verses 1 and 2, we've been reminded this morning the Gospel is a message of salvation from sin that centers on the death of Christ and His resurrection from the dead. Now finally, in verses 9 to 11 of our text, Paul is going to testify of the power of the Gospel to transform our lives and to bring us from darkness into light. Let's have a look at those verses again. Verses 9 to 11. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. 
On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. It's a man who was once fiercely religious, a man who stridently opposed Jesus Christ in the church. The Apostle Paul understood the marvelous power of the Gospel to transform a life. Paul knew from first-hand experience there was nothing inside of him that would ever merit the grace of God. But yet in an act of sheer mercy and grace, God chose him. God spun him around on the Damascus road. God changed his life forever. Paul had an encounter with the risen Jesus on that road. And although he was certainly untimely born, this experience brought him into the company of the apostles. Now, Paul wasn't ashamed to admit that his experience of the resurrected Christ was somewhat unique, but that didn't make him any less of an apostle than Peter and all of the others, and Paul wants to make that point perfectly clear. As an apostle of Jesus Christ, as a new creation in Christ, Paul took a stand upon the Gospel, and he declares something in these verses that any one of us who truly knows and loves the Lord Jesus could also say. I love this part. By the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace towards me is not in vain. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Brothers and sisters, as we conclude our time in the Word this morning, as we prepare to celebrate communion and gather around the table as a church family, let us never forget the power of God's grace in our lives. Let us never fail to marvel the salvation that has been given to us in Jesus Christ. This is a gospel that will do absolutely no good to those who think they are good enough to make it to heaven on their own terms. But for the rest of us, for those who have been brought by God's sovereign grace to see our helpless, hopeless condition, this gospel is able to save to the uttermost. And if today you will confess your need for salvation, if you will cling tightly to the cross of Jesus Christ by grace alone, through faith alone, His grace to you will not be in vain.